The Fantasy Sports Radio Network is now going for the green with Daily Roto. Welcome to Going for the Green on the Fantasy Sports Network. I'm Mike Leone, here with Colin Drew of DailyRoto.com to talk about the Arnold Palmer Invitational at Bay Hill. Uh, If you're tuning into this on iTunes and you like what you have to hear, please write us, leave us a review. helps us a lot. Uh, Colin, this week, though, before we get into the specific tournament, uh, we got to talk about Tiger. He's coming off a... Phenomenal week last week. Really looked good on approach shots as for a couple of events in a row now. I had a chance to tie going into the final hole. Just one back of Paul Casey. Didn't end up pulling it off. I kind of was good for us uh, and the data golf model because we really liked Paul Casey all week long. Uh, I know it made some live to win bets on Casey throughout the weekend, just based on the data at golf live probabilities. And a lot of people felt like our win probability on Casey was too high, just given that he hasn't won in the past. And one of the things that we really do is we say, Hey, if you're this good of a golfer based on your adjusted scoring averages or what have you, then you you're going to have this amount of chance at a selected finish. We don't care that you haven't actually won in the past. So it was very nice to see Paul Casey come through a winner. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, Tiger looked awesome last week, which was really fun too. Um, obviously, we talk a lot about the difficulty of modeling somebody that has no data uh, like Tiger or the data that uh, we do have for him recently or that Data Golf has is really noisy because of the injuries and coming back over the previous couple of years. And so uh, definitely took a little bit of flack in the Twitter streets for the Tiger probabilities, but uh, thankfully for us, Paul Casey was able to bail us out. So uh, I think the other cool thing about seeing Paul Casey win was just that it's another guy that kind of has taken down the narratives of, you know, all these golfers who can't win, but you have these models and, you know, the odds makers are projecting them pretty highly. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, there's only so many people can, that can win on tour and there's a lot of variance that goes into it. And so Paul Casey feels like he was the latest guy to take down that narrative. I know you were obviously on Sergio at the, the Masters last year en route to the second place finish in the Millionaire Maker and, then we got like guys like Gary Woodland and Phil Mickelson. Uh, so I, I always love seeing the guys that sort of have all these narratives going against them. I like seeing them kind of get that monkey off their back. Yeah, so definitely some pros and cons. You know, the, the con being that we were a little bit low on Tiger, the pro being that, that Casey came through for us, and you start to see how uh, a model can be very helpful and how sometimes you might need to make a manual tweak off of that. We have adjusted Tiger for this week. We'll get into that more when we start talking about Bay Hill specifically. But some other things went well for us. I think uh, the leverage plays went well, and we're often talking about good chalk, bad chalk. But if you looked at guys' top 20 odds you know, relative to their ownership, guys like Brendan Grace, uh, Adam Scott, Patrick Reed, specifically Snedeker, until he had that terrible final day. I'm still tilting that. I had some good teams up there with Snedeker. Uh, Zach, Not- Zach Johnson, Russell Knox, and Louis Ustaz, and they all did pretty well. So it was definitely a good week to take into account the ownership and the top 20 odds. And Colin, one thing that I've been, I feel like I've been getting a little bit better at that I struggled with early was saying, okay, you know, do I really care if a guy's 
14% owned to 8% owned. And I think leveraging the top 20 odds helps you put that in perspective a bit more. Of course, there's always a margin of error in the ownership projections, but uh, I think those T20 odds really help you visualize, okay, yeah, there is a difference there. And if the, the odds are closer, this is when I should be playing the 8% owned player, and this is when I should be playing the 14% owned player. Yeah, definitely. And that's something that I've been leveraging a lot and I, I'm trying to identify good chalk, bad chalk. And that was another reason that I was still comfortable playing Casey, um, at, you know, in 20% or so ownership just because his top 20 probabilities were so strong in the data golf model last week. And so felt like the, the type of player that was good chalk, whereas in that, 7K range, there were so many good plays, and there were some that were, you know, they were fine plays, and the models liked them decently enough, but they were just over-owned compared to all the other value around them. So um, I actually ended up winning the $100 three max and the $20 three max last week, and it was another one of those balanced contrarian teams that was uh, part of my good GPP week a couple weeks ago, part of your week, uh, the week that you won, and this team was it's basically those guys that you just mentioned. Casey uh, was at 20%, 21% ownership. Brandon Grace at 7.5% ownership, finished eighth. Uh, Zach Johnson at 13%, had a top 20 finish. Patrick Reed obviously was key to that, 12% ownership, finished second. Adam Scott was 12% owned, top 20 finish. And then Sneds was on that team as well. He was 8% owned and was up there for most of the, the day um, or most of the week, rather, until that Sunday round with Tiger where he kind of fell apart. But uh, definitely a really good week for me, uh, best week I've had this year. A little bit of tilting always because I had three teams in this three max. If I had flipped those three teams uh, with the teams that I had in the 444, so I had three in each of those, cashed all three in the 444, but if I had flipped the GPPs that the teams were in, I could have won 100K. So a little bit of tilt there, oh, uh, but yeah. it's always good, man. It's just it's DFS is tough, a lot of variance, you know. Yeah, definitely a great week for you. I had a pretty good week. The dog lag, I mass multi, or I didn't, I didn't fully max enter that. I had a hundred in the dog lag, but I had, had a couple up there and, you know, I had a lot of the guys you did, you know, just leveraging that stuff. And I think with the leveraging too, when you get a week when the cut is tough on the chalk, you can end up really beating the field in five to six teams, six to six teams. And that's sort of what happened with me where I didn't have any amazing teams, but I had enough five to six, six to six teams. I was picking up main caches with the five to six teams. You know, a couple of my six to six teams came together by the end of the weekend. And it also was a week where sprinkling some of those sub seven K guys or cheaper guys that are going to have like no ownership. You can see where that can come through. I had a, a lineup that just happened to have McGirt and Sabatini in it. And then those guys scored very well from a DraftKings perspective. And it gives you some more leeway for error up top. So it was definitely a good week to visualize the importance of being somewhat leveraged, even if it doesn't look like a huge difference in ownership and I, percentages. Yeah, and I definitely the two best weeks I've had this year have been the weeks where the field has went like 2% on 6 of 6 lineups, and I've got 6 of 6 teams through and kind of smaller field GPPs. And then you're you're competing with like a dozen or 20 teams for first place at that point. So um, I think the teams, even if it was a chalky week where the chalk did fine and made the cut, they're still set up to contend that week. But if it's a week where the chalk fails and you're put into a really good spot, um, obviously it's not always going to work out like that. Sometimes the chalk is going to crush and you're going to take your losses those weeks. And it'll be interesting to see what happens this week because I think there's one notable golfer that will carry pretty heavy ownership. Yeah, and just to even applying what you just said to mass multi-entry, I think I had calculated the odds of winning the dog leg with my 100 entries just based off pure randomness was like 
0.5% uh, to begin the tournament. And then once I did very well through the six to six teams relative to the mid cut, you know, just based on randomness, it went up to 2% if you automatically eliminated any team that wasn't six to six. And, you know, a one in 50 shot then basically at a hundred grand, that's not too bad of odds. So those things really do pile up, but uh, we're going to Bay Hill. It's the ninth hardest course on tour par 72, 7,419 yards. Par fives are somewhat short, but the Eagle opportunities are still limited with the exception of the 16th hole. And uh, in par adjusted yardage, it was 18th and 34th narrowest fairway. So uh, Colin, we do have a a difficult course on hand for us. Yeah, it definitely should be a a good test. Um, I think, you know, a lot of guys use this or some guys use it as their kind of final tune up for the masters um, just because Next week, uh, we're off from a DFS perspective because of the match play tournament and the Puerto Rico tournament this year. I believe they're doing for charity, so you don't even have that kind of secondary tournament. So a lot of guys, this will kind of be the the final time we see them um, in a stroke play event before Augusta. Uh, so it, it should be a, a great tournament. It's definitely a tough course. I know from a course fit perspective, you were looking at some of the interesting things on uh, data golf as far as uh, the strokes gained buckets. And I think that aligns a little bit with what we're seeing, which is like the, the fairways are, are decently forgiving um, as far as like their narrowest. And it's not a overly long course. It's not short by any means, but it's, you know, kind of in the, the, like, you know, third, uh, like around the 30th percentile or so, sorry. Um, and some of the stuff you saw from course fit, I think will be pretty interesting if you want to get into that. Yeah, so Data Golf has a pretty cool tool on datagolf.ca. It's a historic event data. And what they do is they look at the percentage of, you know, total strokes gained, what that's compiled of based on strokes gained putting, approach, off the tee, and around the green. And what they do is they can compare uh, those buckets to basically the tour average. And what we see uh, over the history of the event is that strokes gained approach makes up a higher percentage of shots than the tour average at uh, Bay Hill. Whereas, and that most of that extra comes from putting where it doesn't matter. Um, or I shouldn't say it doesn't matter quite as much, but it hasn't made up historically uh, as high of a percentage of the total strokes gain. And Colin, we've talked a lot about how isolating one statistic can get you into trouble just because there's a lot of noise in various ways, the way that the strokes gained approaches work. But all in all, as you said, it kind of aligns with what you might think naturally, and that's that strokes gain approach really does matter. And we look at some of the specific course history. Uh, Tiger Woods by far is number one in terms of strokes gained per round. In his 12 rounds, he's played here, averaging three and a half strokes gained relative to the field per round. Uh, Nobody else is even at two and a half, uh, just to give you an idea there. Of course, only 12 rounds, so a three full tournaments there. But uh, he has been playing very well recently in terms of strokes gained approach. So that's interesting. We're going to Tiger specifically more, though, in a little bit. Um, But some of the other guys here that rate well, Francesco Molinari has the best course history for someone that has at least 20 rounds at plus 2.25. And you do see a lot of these guys that are, you know, approach accuracy type guys up here. Uh, you know, you've got some of the guys that are already good. So it feels like cheating, but like Stenson and Scott, but then Molinari, Kevin Na are in here. Uh, Jim Furyk, some of these guys that are good in terms of stroke skin approach. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, you know, this is one of the courses where some, a lot, there are a lot of guys, um, 
who have good course history, who we would just expect that. Even if I just kind of read their names, you're like, oh, they probably have good course history most places. So, um, you know, obviously the guys that you named, um, a lot of world-class golfers, someone like Zach Johnson's made 13 and 14 cuts here, five top tens. Charles Howell III, I believe, has made 15 and 17 cuts, but only once inside the top ten. Um, it's also worth noting that it is an invitational tournament, which means that the field is smaller. So I believe it's around 120-man field right now. Uh, so obviously with the cut being top 70 in ties, there is just in general, like you're going to have a higher made cut probability at this event than most of your other ones, and that'll feed a little bit into the course history stuff as well. Some of the, the stuff with the course fit and strokes gained approach, I definitely think that what you're saying is accurate. Um, you know, last year... And, and over the last five years in general, last year was 39% of the strokes were gained on approach and 38% over the kind of previous five years versus a tour baseline of 34.8%. Um, so I think sometimes people hear like a stat, like strokes and approach mattering more this week, and they start to get it in their heads that it's the only thing that matters. And obviously that's definitely not the case because even with a stronger weighting here, you still have the off the tee around the green and putting stuff that's going to account for 60% of the strokes that were gained last year. So you can't just throw that stuff out. Um, the other thing is that like looking at that data, it, I think it's really interesting. Um, and it's kind of the easiest way to get kind of a quick snapshot of the course, which is why I like to do it. Uh, but it is descriptive versus being predictive. So if like the strokes gained approach, we know that a lot of the strokes were gained on approach to this event last year. Great. But what if like all the guys who gained strokes on approach were actually generally horrible approach players? Like then all of a sudden it wouldn't be good for us to look at strokes gained approach as like a predictive indicator. Now I think like in general it's gonna most most of the time it'll align a little bit, but um I think that's one of the kind of dangers of just looking at the legacy data about the course and not looking at the legacy data about the players and then tying that to who did well at that specific event, you know? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And something we've talked about too is Someone, you know, Dustin Johnson is an extreme example, but uh, if he's gaining a ton of strokes off the tee, it might limit the potential strokes he can gain uh, in terms of approach just because, you know, from his starting point, the possible reward and, you know, the, the ceiling on a stroke gain on the approach shot might be lower than somebody else who's playing a little bit further back has a tougher shot. And all of a sudden, you know, they both stick it to 10 feet or whatever. The guy who was in a tougher spot is going to gain more strokes approach. So it doesn't necessarily mean that Dustin Johnson isn't good in strokes gain approach, right? It just means that he hasn't had the same number of opportunities as somebody else or the opportunities haven't had the same ceiling as somebody else. So you do have to be careful too, uh, you know, not only in the descriptive versus predictive dynamic that you laid out column but also in terms of strokes gained defining someone's skill at something uh it's not necessarily you know directly indicative of that so uh, i think that's very interesting i am trying to keep my out on guys who are good on approach shots particularly but that's within the context of everything else as you said you definitely do not want to overweight this type of thing. So uh, let's get into the conversation. I think before uh, we get into anything else, Tiger Woods is probably the guy we, we need to talk about most because it's a very difficult situation. He might be, I know Drew Dinkmeyer, we were talking about before uh, the show with, he was saying how projecting Tiger right now might be one of the hardest guys to project that he's ever seen for DFS in any sport at any time, really. And that's because he was, in his prime, just 
insanely dominant. That's just hard to even put into context how dominant he was. Uh, and now he hasn't been healthy. We have bad data on him. It looks like he might be back. He's playing really good. But, you know, one, you know, what does being back mean? Is he back to his prime? If he is, the fields seem like they're stronger now. You know, how dominant is he is? Or is he back as in he's very good right now, but he's not, you know, dominant over the field. So uh, very difficult to tell what to do with him. Our initial projections uh, from data golf and the finished probability model has him with the 10th highest win odds. And I think when you consider the uncertainty and everything, that makes sense. Maybe you could make the case he moves up to five. But uh, one thing I can't get my head around, uh, at least you know personally, is his actual odds on, on some of the sports books. Like if you look at sportsbook.ag, his odds to win, he's plus 500 right now. Uh, Jason Day is next closest at plus 1,000. So this is basically saying that Tiger Woods is twice as likely to win as the next closest guy in the field being Jason Day. And that just seems to be, you know, too optimistic for me. Yeah. I mean, some of that, in my opinion, ends up just being like risk management from their perspective because they know that they're going to take a lot of action on him. And so people are going to bet him even if they put out a bad number. So unless they're really confident that he's going to do poorly, then like, why don't they just put out a bad number and people will still bet on it anyways. So um, I kind of view that as um, just like a little bit of their way of managing the risk as far as like what they act versus what they actually think is like the true odds of his you know chance to succeed this week. What I'm most curious about is when the head to head markets get released, because the the T20 markets and the odds to win markets, they don't take two way action. So they're not letting you short Tiger like to win or they're not letting you. Um, short his ability to come inside the top 20 in booking action on both sides of the line. But when they open up the head-to-head lines and they open it up against Day or Rose or Rory or whoever they're going to do it, like they're taking two sides action there. So I think that'll give you a little bit more of an indication as far as um, what his what they view kind of his true equity in this tournament is. Um, but anybody who kind of uses like Vegas odds as part of their research process, especially with Tiger's price this week, he's obviously going to be uh, a supreme value. And um, we have him projected for near 40% ownership this week. And and a lot of times I see a number like that, and I think it's crazy. But you can kind of feel like the hype. It's already there. And like the the strokes gained approach um, for the people who are kind of diving into the data has been so strong the last two events, gaining almost five strokes on approach both events. And then the short game really showed up last week as well, um, gaining four strokes around the greens. And if he had had a good putting week, he could have easily been on the leaderboard. And I think with Tiger, people are definitely going to be a lot more willing to cling to the last two rounds than they are look at, you know, the four events that he's played this year. And that's kind of one of the challenges that we're wrestling with. I think one of the guys that I drew a parallel to, if you look at the four event body of work was Phil Mickelson, just because Tiger's been losing some strokes off the tee, but doing really well with approaching around the green and generally putting well. And that seems a lot like Phil's kind of playing. But uh, if you look at the last two events, he's obviously been really solid all around. Yeah, and adding to that difficulty is he has that amazing course history that we referenced in his 12 rounds played here. So that just keeps the hype train rolling and rolling. And if he gets to 40%, you know, in tournaments, do you play him? Do you not play him is the conversation. And for me, 
I, I feel like it's an easy answer. I feel like you fade them in tournaments. I know everyone has different risk tolerance profiles, and if you full fade Tiger Woods in, in mass multi-entry or even in you know spreading around 10 to 15 tournament teams in single entry and three max and he wins, you're likely going to lose your entire bankroll for the week. But I just think the expected value is really, really high not playing him when he's, I mean, 40% is a big number. I rarely think any golfer should be 40% owned unless there's a really egregious mispricing with someone, you know, below the average cost of a roster spot or it's a stud golfer in a really weak field. Well, this isn't a weak field by any means. Uh, as I said, he has the 10th highest probability in our initial projections. And that might seem low, but the guys ahead of him, Fleetwood, Stenson, Rory, you know, Day, Hideki, Haddon, Rose, Fowler, Norin, like these, these are really good golfers, uh, and then even like behind him, you've got guys like Adam Scott and, and Patrick Reed in this field. So it's just difficult for me to justify playing someone in a very, very volatile sport. That golf is a very, very even if Tiger Woods was a super, you know, even if he was number one in win probability, he still would need to have to be number one by uh, a decent margin, in my opinion, to be worth owning at 40% owned in a top-heavy payout structure. Yeah, and I definitely think that the top-heavy field uh, matters a lot as far as how you're thinking about the decision, if it's a top-heavy payout structure, rather, um, or if it's a balanced payout structure. And then the field size, if you're playing like a 10-man league on DraftKings, then you're going to approach that differently than if you're playing in a GPP with 40,000 people. Um, and so... I guess if you believe that data golf probability is in Tiger's definitely a horrible play at that ownership because there's so many better plays both in value and lower ownership around him. If you were to believe the Vegas odds that he has like an 80% chance to finish inside the top 20, then all of a sudden I do think that it becomes a little bit more negotiable as far as whether or not you can eat the ownership at 40%. If you believe maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle and, and maybe you kind of put him like peg near Jason Day, who we have ranked number one, then I think even at like the, at the number one ranked player in the tournament, if you were to kind of flip him with Jason Day's odds and data golf probability at 40% ownership and 60% odds to finish in the top 20, I think a fade is probably merited more often than not. Um, obviously, chances are that he's probably going to do decently, and and you'll have to hope that you know your pivots either outperform him or that he fails, but and they're taking on kind of a risk of of losing in a given week. But over the long run, it seems like it would be the right decision. Yeah, and that's, what it really comes back to for me, one, that's just such a high number, 40%. And as you and I were talking about, as high as it seems, like maybe it gets even higher with some concerns with some guys around him, like Ricky Fowler hasn't been playing well. Hideki Matsuyama is coming, you know, it's his first tournament back since he withdrew with a wrist injury at the Waste Management Open. You know, maybe it gets even higher. So it's just wild to think that. But just the amount of high-quality pivots that you can make. I feel like you have so many outs here uh, if you're not not using Tiger Woods. And the one thing that's fun to me is you can build – You know, we talked about those balanced contrarian lineups that have been doing really well for us this year. Well, you can build a lot of lineups with some of these 9K, multiple 9K guys that are somewhat balanced and not have to deal with any – bad golfers in your fifth, sixth spots. And you can be overweight on these 9K golfers because if Tiger's taking 40% ownership, it's coming from these guys. So it's a fun week for me because I feel like if I full fade Tiger with 150 entries, what I'm able to do 
is have exposure to all the other top golfers in the field at either equal to the field or overweight in the field. And usually if you're spreading things out like that among like eight or nine golfers up top, you can't do that. It just doesn't mathematically work. But if Tiger's going to take 40%, it does start to mathematically work. But before we get into those balanced contrarian plays, uh, it is someone we have to talk about. Jason Day, you mentioned we have him as the top golfer. I was surprised initially that we had Jason Day so far ahead of everybody else. We really do have him uh, clearly above the field, even with it being a really strong field. And if you look at Day and our strokes gained, which we adjust for the field and the course difficulty and whatnot, he leads the uh, all the players in this event in strokes gained the last two months, in strokes gained the last six months per round, and strokes gained the last two years per round. So that combination of long-term form and short-term form is really driving him up the model. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it definitely, there, I was surprised too, just as far as the degree of separation, I guess, uh, between him and the other players. But then you start to get into the, the nuts and bolts of some of the other players and what they've been doing recently, and you understand it a little bit more. Obviously, you have all the, the question marks around Tiger with the, the data. It's, it's going to be hard to model that, and that's something if you're using the projections that you definitely want to take care and do manual adjustments as far as thinking thoughtfully about Tiger versus just, jamming buttons because like the model is going to spit something out um i think that you know day has merit to be the the favorite in this field though rory obviously there's some question marks with his recent form since he's come over to the states hasn't been quite what we expect of him fowler i believe has missed two of his last four cuts after kind of finishing last year pretty strong and opening up with a fourth place finish at the tournament champions and so i think that between kind of the question marks with rory despite his course history question marks with fowler and then Matsuyama coming off that wrist injury is like really a wild card because we haven't seen him and we don't really know if he's how much he's been able to practice. And that's definitely something that I want to dig into is, um, you know, kind of where does he feel like his game's at right now? And so all of that sets up for Tiger to be uh, very heavily owned. But um, I, I think that there's from a leverage perspective, there's merit. Um, I definitely have kind of the I definitely have a you know, the desire to play day in some lineups, but he's so expensive in this field that I feel like unless the ownership discount's extreme, like I don't want to hammer him too heavily because we're also getting nice ownership discounts on all these kind of reasonably priced golfers with decent equity. Yeah, I think that's the dilemma this week because uh, in a vacuum, I really do want to use a decent bit of day. I do see our initial ownership projection on 18%. I'm hopeful that that drops just the combination of Tiger taking up so much ownership and all of these other pivots that people say, you know, why am I paying $1,000 more for day than I am for basically anybody else? We Justin Rose is also priced pretty expensively at 11.5. I think he's the guy that I'm second most likely to be underweight on of the 9k plus guys just because I think Day is demonstrably the better play between the two he's not that much more expensive and the ownership disparity likely isn't to be too huge um, but after that I kind of want to be you know in with the field or a little bit overweight on all the guys like I said um, but mostly the 9k guys before we get to the 9k guys though uh we got a couple big question mark guys here in the 10Ks. You mentioned Rory hasn't played as well, but he did lead the field in strokes game tee to green last year at this tournament. Uh, you've got Fowler, who has had some really disappointing outings, but it looks like he's struggled with the putter. He's been okay in terms of approach and whatnot uh, the last couple of weeks. So how are you dealing with these guys that have the question marks in the 10K range? 
Yeah, I mean, it's going to be tough. I'll probably end up um, like Rory and Fowler both, I think, have missed two of their last four cuts in the States. And so uh, definitely some question marks there, but the ownership's probably going to be compelling enough for me to play them. Uh, I think that's why one of the reasons, like, kind of having the decision-making rooted in comparing the T20 odds to the ownership projections. And I think that both of them are going to have some value. Um, and I think Rose is going to have value. Like, I don't see a lot of separation. I think the ownership between those three golfers is fairly efficient. I think that maybe Day gets a little lower owned than he should. Um, and then, obviously, like, rooted in that is the fact that Tiger is probably going to get massively over-owned. So um, I'm not having, like, a. it's not easy for me to separate between those four guys that the top and uh what usually when that happens what what it ends up meaning is i'll play a little bit of each of them i think kind of the other option is just fading the entire top of the board with some of those question marks hoping you know that the the question marks come through and then you're able to grab this next balance contrarian range and and grab like a ton of good values and get really high six of six um probabilities by starting a team with someone like a matsuyama or a norin or a stenson yeah, and I, I really like our finished probabilities this week. I feel like the data has caught up a little bit with Rory, where uh, if you're doing a leverage-type score on him, it's more reasonable than, like, like last week I ended up with a lot of him because I just couldn't fight the low ownership projection and, and the high T20 probability. I feel like it's, the data's caught up with him a little bit, but it's also caught up with guys like uh, Alex Norin, Fleetwood, uh, Haddon, some of these Euro guys who have had played really well recently, and it's got them with stronger odds. So it could be a really fun week. And this 9K range, this is the range where I sort of think I'm going to make sure I'm overweight on these guys first and then kind of see what's left to decide with the 10K plus guys. And that's because of the ability to build lineups with two and even three of these guys in your lineup and really not have it hurt the back end of your roster too much. So uh, I'm, you know, right away, Hideki is the guy that I think I'm willing to take a chance on in tournaments. I know he's dealing with the wrist injury uh, that he withdrew from, but he delayed his return a couple of times because he felt not, not that he wasn't healthy. He just felt like he wasn't up to competitive par and just, I'm probably creating my own narrative around Hideki, which I usually hate, but I just feel like he's not playing uh, in, in this tournament unless he's ready uh, I guess the counter argument to that would be he has to play to get ready for the Masters, even if he's not fully ready. But I, I think I'm buying Hideki if he's going to be anywhere below 15% owned. Yeah, and, and I'm guessing he w- he will just because that the Tiger fella is just 200 bucks more, and uh, no question marks with him just based on his recent play like i don't think the community generally has question marks because they've seen what he can do the last two weeks i don't think it means there shouldn't be question marks as far as whether he can sustain it um matsuyama definitely has the the highest kind of leverage score in this entire field and uh, i'm certainly willing to take a gamble on his wrist being healthy and him being able to kind of regain his form uh pretty quickly so i I think that um, because of the question marks i'll probably cap my ownership like I think Casey, I might have had 45% Casey last week just because I really had no question marks there and he projected so well. And I was, I felt like maybe even a top five or top 10 was good enough at his price. I feel like Matsuyama, the same finish could be good enough for his price, but I have some more question marks. So I'll probably cap my ownership on Hideki, but it's hard for me to see it getting uh, below maybe 25% or so. And then uh, Norin and Haddon, I like quite a bit. Haddon rates really well in our finish probability model, actually has the third highest to win odds. And we've got Haddon, 
Norin, Fleetwood, those guys all around, you know, 20 to 28% to top 10 this tournament, which I know there's a pretty big gap between 20 and 28%, but they're all within that range. And Haddon, I was surprised to see, but over the last six months, we, we've got him third best in our uh, adjusted strokes gained. Norin we has rated eighth in strokes gain approach this season. He's gained strokes approach five straight events, four of them by a really large amount. So uh, I like the course fit on Haddon. I like the form for both of these guys. I like the price on both of these guys. I think that even if they're somewhat chalky, the fact that non-Tiger chalk is going to be deflated from where it normally would be allows me to be overweight. And then, uh, you want to talk more about question mark guys, uh, Henrik Stenson with the miscut last week. You know, if you just looked at him and his price tag, you'd probably be buying him. It's nine. I mean, $9,100. We don't see him this low that often. Yeah. I, I mean, Haddon was a really interesting one. His form definitely flew under the radar for me. Um, I, I did not realize that he had top 20 in 11 of his previous 12 events, two victories over that time and two additional or three additional finishes inside the top five. So really good form on a global stage. Obviously a, a lot of those results were in Europe where the fields are weaker, but a couple of those results were also in the world golf championship events. And so, um, I think that, uh, you know, he, he was another one that was a little bit of sticker shock for me when I looked at the probability model. Uh, but I think it, it aligns and he kind of fits that, that good chalk mold where even at high ownership, I think that, you know, his probabilities look pretty decent there. Um, I think that, uh, Norin and Stenson are, are kind of the next guys that I'd be looking at in that range. Um, as far as leverage, just because I think that they'll carry a fair bit lower ownership, uh, Fleetwood, again, another week where he projects as a solid play in the model, um, but feels like he's going to carry the heaviest ownership of that trio, and they just all seem so similar to me. Yeah, I sigh when you say Fleetwood just because I'm sick of being underweight on Fleetwood because I really do like him, but he gets talked up so much, and you just look at the the math and where he's owned relative to some of these other good plays, and it's tough. But I think this is a week where I'm going to try and, and maybe match the field with Fleetwood, even though, the, you know, I'm going to try and match with him and be overweight on the other 9K guys is basically what I'm looking at. But when you look beyond the 9K guys, I know we spent a lot of time on the expensive guys this week, but it's really important to how you're setting up your rosters and it's just a loaded field. Uh, Patrick Reed up at 8,900, Adam Scott, 8,700, Bubba Watson, 8,600. These are three guys who have played really well this season and have rewarded people. Reed rewarded people last week. Scott's been around this price range. People have been playing him and he's come through for him relative to come through for them relative to his price. And I feel like people like to keep playing a guy they've been using who's been helping them. And then Bubba, of course, you know, he won a tournament. Uh, he did, I think he did really well from a DK scoring perspective at the WGC. I don't remember exactly where he wound up in the standings there, but. Uh, this tier I'm struggling with uh, just because I anticipate being so heavy on like Haddon, Stenson, Norin, Hideki that it might not leave me enough room to play these guys a lot, even though the ownership at first look doesn't look to be egregious on any of them. Yeah, and I think the like the Scott will probably end up being the highest owned of the group, but I, I like him. I think he definitely makes sense for three max um, type formats and is a guy that. I'll look to pair with some of the guys that we mentioned above. Um, 
I think if you're going kind of more contrarian in some of the larger field GPPs, I think that Mark Leishman, uh, Brant Snedeker, and Louis Oosthuizen were guys that jumped out to me as being under-owned uh, compared to their probabilities. I know we mentioned that Leishman – um, you know, his finish last year here was a lot of it driven by a really hot putter, but he's still a guy that is now at a depressed price um, and has generally over the last 12 months been in really strong form. And so like Leishman, Sneds and Ustays, and I think you're probably going to get all at single digit ownership. And so that type of, um, you know, roster construction is one that I've I've been drawn to, um, particularly when I'm not super fond of some of the chalk uh, like Luke List, Jason Kokrak, and uh, Jamie Lovemark, and I don't know if Affy Barnrat's actually going to be chalk or not. But um, sorry, Seabass, uh, if you're listening, but I don't think I want to go with the Affy Barnrat chalk week. Yeah, I think this 8K-ish range I'm, I'm steering away from as well. I'd much rather play Leishman at less ownership than Luke List. I think that's where, you know, recency bias, as we've noted, it's not as strong as it once was in DFS golf, but it's not non-existent either. And I think we do see Love Mark, List, Kokrak, just a little bit higher than they should. And I just, you know, I don't see where uh, that little bit of savings gets me that much, you know. Three 9K guys is a fun build. Two 9K guys and those mid-eight guys that you just mentioned at low ownerships, really fun build yeah. as well. Um, and I was just going to say, like, Liz Kokrak, Lovemark, I don't think they're, like, egregious plays or they're egregiously priced, but if you look at, like, the top 20 odds for Liz, for example, 26% to T20, whereas Leishman is 31%, and Liz is going to come in at a little higher ownership. So it's not that I think that they're, they're, like, egregious plays or super overpriced, but when you kind of break down a decision like that, then it makes sense to just grab Leishman at the high, slightly higher probability and slightly lower ownership. Definitely. And then uh, one guy who was chalk last week, initially we don't have him as chalk as we you know moved down the pricing spectrums, Cameron Smith, who... Uh, I'm somewhat interested. He scored really well from a DK perspective last week, made the cut. And I talked about someone with good recent form. If you look at, at the strokes game the last six months, he's got 36 rounds of data. The only guys that rate better than him are Haddon, Rose, and Day. So a uh, pretty good company there for Cameron Smith. Uh, are you, do you think that ownership number comes up as we move throughout the week? Obviously, it's very difficult uh, to gauge the ownership exactly, you know, at a, at a very precise amount this early in the week. Yeah, I mean, I think if you want the the answer to that, then uh, grab at dailyroto.com premium package and head over and grab the updated ownership projections at the end of the day, Tuesday and first thing Wednesday, because I'll feel really good about them uh, there. I, I definitely think that. Cam Smith is going to take a severe step down uh, as far as ownership just because of uh, some of the other names that are around him um, a little bit. And obviously everyone's just going to take a little bit of a step down if Tiger's soaking up a ton of ownership. Um, it's, it just eats into the rosters in general. So I think he he's definitely an interesting guy. And one of the things that's hard to do, and we've chatted a little bit with the Data Golf guys about it, is just trying to adjust, um, you know, projections and performance, like as far as golfers age. And Cameron Smith is definitely uh, sort of a, a young prospect, so to speak, and a guy that was really highly ranked on the World Amateur Golf ranking stage. And, and that stuff has generally ended up being fairly predictable, um, especially like as they get closer to their tour careers as far as future tour success. So um, Cameron Smith's definitely a guy on my radar. Uh, I think, you know, in, in a cash game type format or, or single entry type format, I think Zach Johnson is a really strong play, kind of in the, the high 7Ks. Um, but he, he'll carry a fair bit of ownership, so 
his leverage score for large field tournaments isn't quite as strong um, as someone like Byung-Hun Ahn, who was a little more popular last week than he seems like he'll be this week, and someone like Ryan Moore, who was also pretty popular last week and seems like he'll have his ownership tail off. Um, and then another guy in this kind of upper 7K range uh, was a guy that I had recommended last week as a pivot um, off of some of the more popular $7,500 players, and that's Russell Knox. If you go over to the strokes game trend data over on dailyroto.com, uh, Knox, it looks like it's almost his 12th straight event gaining strokes T to green. And that seems like it should put him in a really good position to at least be playing the weekend at this event and hopefully flirting with a top 20 finish. Yeah, I like Knox there. I like James Hahn as well, who uh, I wish the ownership projection was a little bit lower. He's played very well recently. You know, looks like a, a pretty strong option in our finish probability model, you know, 76% chance to make the cut, uh, nearly uh, 25% chance to top 20. So I like Han there as well as a pivot who might not be, you know, super low owned, but he's going to be probably lower owned than uh, Zach Johnson type there. Uh, as we move down the price spectrum, though, I think in the low 7Ks, there's a few guys I like as, you know, safer plays that rate well in the finish probability model and a few guys I like that are riskier but could have really good DK scoring weeks. And as we mentioned, the field size isn't as large as usual. I think it's 120 people, uh, if I'm not mistaken, which, of course, increases the odds of everybody making the cut. So a couple of those guys that rate well in our fantasy model a bit better than our finish probability model would be Charles Schwartzel, J.B. Holmes, and Ali Schneider-Johns, guys that can definitely uh, rack up the DK scoring points. I know Holmes led the field last week in shot scan approach, which was surprising to see. He's only 7K, comes with a really low ownership. Always a high-risk reward play, but when you get the ownership that low, uh, that's someone that you can be you know, 6 to 7% owned uh, as part of your rosters and still be pretty overweight on the field. Yeah, and he was another guy uh, that popped a lot in sort of the leverage metric. Um, and I think some of the – it's early in the week, and some of the stuff I'm wrestling with a little bit is, unfortunately, a couple of my favorite plays uh, seem like they're going to be really chalk. And I think the the one thing I'm definitely thinking about – I haven't decided what I'm going to do on Tiger Woods for sure yet. Uh, but w- one thing I do know is if I play Tiger, I'm going to have to consciously think about constructing those teams in a different way than other people who are also building around Tiger. And I think – Probably the the worst thing that you could do is start off a team with like Tiger, Chapel, Molinari, just because I think we're going to see really high ownership as well on Chapel and Molinari. I know that they are plays that rate well in every model that we have. They're also being heavily touted and are rating well in the Vegas odds models that a lot of people like to lean on. So I'm expecting 20% ownership on those guys, and um, it's going to be a little bit of a struggle because I think purely from a leverage score metric in large field GPPs, uh, that's going to be something that um, they're not going to look very strong in just because the ownership is going to be so high, and they have good odds to finish in the top 20, but you know, 30% or so odds to finish in the top 20 at 20% ownership doesn't give you a lot of benefit the the rare amount of the time that it actually happens. Yeah, and I do think that if you're playing cash games, Molinari, Chapel are both really, really strong players. Like, they would be considered good chalk, obviously, just because it's good chalk doesn't mean you have to use them in tournaments because there's so many things to take into account, Colin. As you said, like the other guys that you're playing in the lineup, um, you know, the field size, everything matters there. But in cash games, I think Molinari... A really strong play of players with at least 20 rounds on this course. He actually uh, leads the field in strokes gained uh, per 
per, strokes gained per round played at Bay Hill. I think it's like plus 2.25. It's a pretty strong number. And of course, someone that's third in strokes gained approach in 2017 on the PGA Tour. So just seems to fit well. He's someone that our long-term adjusted scoring averages always seem to like. So a uh, big fan of Molinari and cash games. And Chapels, I mean, he's like a well-rounded guy where I think he's, you know, he rates well in the finish probability model, but he's also a pretty good DK scorer at this price tag. So that's the chalk that I think you're looking to use in cash games. As you differentiate yourself more in tournaments, uh, anyone that sticks out in particular as like a really good leverage play off that chalky group. I mean, you've got Keegan Bradley, who's somewhat chalky here. I think he's another guy that's a decent cash play, but you know, someone even, I guess, with a lower ownership projection than Keegan. Um, it's tough. So I, I think like in the low 7K, in general, I think the low 7K range is a little bit barren of value. Um, Stuart Sink, I guess, in like a large field MME type format, uh, really like low, below 5% ownership projection. It's hard to see that changing much. 20% odds to finish inside the top 20 in a decent fantasy projection would pr- give you kind of more leverage in the event that he does kind of finish as one of the higher guys than a lot of the other uh, players that we mentioned. So I think he's one name that's on the radar a little bit. I know that Peter Uline is another guy that, um, you know, has, has had mixed results over in the States, but I think that the data golf probability models kind of like him um, a little bit. And then I think Kevin Na kind of in the lower 7K range uh, still has enough upside that even at, you know, approaching maybe 10% ownership, I th- still think that's sort of like in a, a good chalk um, type of leverage score versus an over-owned. Uh, one of the guys that we kind of blew past a little bit uh, was Emiliano Grillo. Um, that's another guy that like Chapel and Molinari I'm going to be struggling with because he projects decently um, in both sets of projections that we have, but is going to carry really heavy ownership. And he's definitely a volatile golfer that while he can score well from a DK perspective, he could definitely eject and miss the cut. And he could be one of those guys that if, if he does miss the cut, it's on one of those weeks where you only get 1% of teams going six to six, you know? Definitely. And I do, it does look like, the market early on is identifying pretty good chalk, which again, just makes me feel even better about my personal stance on, on fading tiger in tournaments, because if I want to play some of the good chalk, I'm going to want some contrarian lineups and what better way to do it than go zero uh, percent, the highest owned guy in the field by quite a bit. But as we look at some more of these cheaper golfers, uh, as we've said every single week on this show, I think there's definitely a demonstrable difference as you move down to the low 7K range and the sub 7K range where guys are just not as good, which again, I think that's part of the reason why the hybrid contrarian strategy has worked well because uh, your six out of six odds really improve when your worst golfer I think is like in this field, for example, like $7,300 or more. Uh, but some $7,100 guys, I'm definitely going to take some stabs on. Charlie Hoffman, I just can't seem to quit him uh, on him every week. And then Kevin Kisner stuck out to me right away. I think he's not going to be like super low owned, but single digits. Uh, if I do end up with some teams where I just need a little bit more cap relief and can't quite afford a, a mid-7Ks guys, that both those guys will find their way onto rosters for me. 
Yeah, I, th- I think you've kind of honed in on some of those guys. Hoffman, Holmes, I think, are interesting for tournaments. I think the other guy that was quite popular last week now has seen a drop in price tag, a drop in ownership, and hasn't changed at all as a golfer, really, is Kevin Streelman. So I think from a low, uh, low price, low ownership tournament perspective, if you're building teams with like a Jason Day or, or whatever, then I think you have to dip into this range. And that's another guy, um, that is on my radar. I know your boy Lahiri is down below seven <laughs> K. Um, he's, I think projects interesting, um, from tournament leverage, like Lahiri, Harkins, Horschel probably aren't going to make my teams in three max formats because I probably won't go below 7K, but I think they would be if I end up building maybe a 20 max uh, set of lineups this week. Yeah, I like Brandon Harkins too, $6,900 to when we've got around around a 15% chance to T20, and that's where you start getting into game theory where it's like, you know, is Harkins worth playing at 2% ownership with a 15% chance to T20 over, I don't know, someone like Keegan Bradley who's like 15%. Uh, ownership and his, but he's a little bit higher than 20% to T20. And I think that's where, you know, those conversations get very interesting. But at a certain point, you need to kind of balance yourself out, right? Where you have like a certain amount of total T20 odds and a certain amount of leverage. Like you can't just go 100% leverage and quit all of the good plays. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's something I'm still struggling with, um, in general is, like, do you load up a team full of leverage, you know, maybe in the super large field, super top heavy Millie Maker type stuff over the long run that works out? But you're probably right that, um, you're, you're not trying to build like a really low probability, low owned team. You're trying to build like a, a high probability team that has a, a low enough ownership that it can kind of separate you. Um, the other point that you brought up, which I think is really interesting this week is just, I, I know when we were going through the podcast last week and when I was writing up the pro tip that, it was pretty easy for me to identify some of the guys that I considered bad chalk and ended up full fading some pretty popular plays. And I didn't, I just felt like they were overpriced and, um, even at low ownership, they weren't going to be strong plays. And so it was a easy decision. This week definitely is a little different. I think that range right around 8k with like Kokrak, Lovemark, Barnrat, uh, seems a little easier for me to deal with than the 7k range where it definitely feels like a more efficient week where, the, uh, at least our projections are aligning more with like the community set sentiment. And it does make me wonder a little bit that, uh, like whether or not this is a, a high edge week to play DFS and I should be playing a lot or whether it's maybe a lower edge week and I should pull back kind of on my entry fees. Yeah. I think, I think it all comes back to Tyrion, what you want to do with him because, uh, that's, that's just a really difficult situation. Whether or not you get him right is going to have a massive impact on your winnings and based on what you do there. I think for me, you know, looking at this, uh, I'll, I, I make a lot of teams, so I'll make some unique teams. But my general core strategy is going to be to uh, pound that 9K range and then maybe just spread out a lot in the 7K range. As you said, it's difficult to uh, dissect you know, the bad chalk versus the good chalk here. The market seems pretty efficient. So I can naturally be a little bit underweight but still have exposure to the chalkier guys and then you know, naturally be a little bit overweight. Uh, without having too high of exposure to some of the riskier guys in this range and then just be very spread out, hope I get the right combo, and then be so overweight on the 9K guys that if some combination of them hits, 
uh, we're pretty happy. But that's uh, going to do it for us on this edition of the Going for the Green radio show on Fantasy Sports Network. Please check out DailyRoto.com slash premium. I get all the good stuff from Daily Roto and Data Golf. And also, again, if you like the show, rate us, review us on iTunes. It's a big help. Thanks for tuning in, everybody, and best of luck in all your contests.